Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. We have multiple locations, including an online service found at gethope.tv. If you're not from the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina or near our Agape campus in Haiti, we'd love to still have you be a part of what Hope is up to through our online services. If you do live in our physical area, go to our website at gethope.net to check out where our campuses are located and our service times. Please like and share this with your friends or family. We are so glad you stopped by. Well, what's up, Hope? Thank you uh, for those of you joining us online. Uh, we tried something a little bit different last week. Normally, when we record the online sermons, we're in front of a huge crowd, and we just kind of felt that's a little weird if you're like sitting in your living room or watching on a computer in your bed. You're kind of watching. You're not really participating. And so we're recording in a much smaller room. I got about eight or ten of my friends here. So you're just going to listen in to a conversation that we're going to have about the Holy Spirit and about what the Bible has to say about that member of the Trinity. We're not going to get to the Spirit for quite a while, so hang on and be patient. We will get to him, but I want to start off uh, telling you a story. It's actually a story that I used in the very first sermon I ever gave here at Hope Community Church, probably 12 years ago, so there might be like two of you that remember. Uh, I don't remember what I said two weeks ago, so I think I'm safe in using it, but this is a true story. It was when my daughters were little, and uh, I would drop them off at daycare uh, every single weekday at, at the Raleigh campus here at Hope. We have a daycare on the bottom floor, the offices in the top floor where we share a parking lot with a Christian elementary school. That'll be important later. But I was driving down the highway to drop them off, and uh, my daughter dropped her blankie on the floor. And so in a very safe way, I looked away from traffic momentarily, and I reached and got that blankie and handed it to her. And when I did, she yelled and she pointed at the windshield. So I was kind of startled. Uh, so I looked at the windshield, and I yelled as well because there was this dark red viscous liquid completely covering our bright white minivan. And it was covering the windshield. It was covering uh, the passenger and driver window. And so I yelled. My heart was kind of in my throat. My heart started beating like crazy. And I was freaking out thinking, what in the world happened? If, if I hit a deer, I would have felt it and I didn't feel it. And for that amount of blood, it would have to be like a flock of deer, like 12 or 15 deer. So I'm pretty sure I didn't kill anything. So I clean off the windshield and I'm kind of calming down. My pulse is going down and I'm trying to think through what happened. And then I noticed other people noticing me. So this brand new emotion started coming up. My face started turning red and there were people with their jaws open. People were slowing down. They were taking video of me in this van and I'm like a pastor. I don't wanna be seen driving this like murder van. So uh, I get off the exit as soon as I can and I get stopped at a stoplight, of course, and it is the longest stoplight of my entire life. People are, are looking at me, taking pictures. The homeless guy that's usually asking for money is like running the other way at Olympic pace, no kidding. So I finally get to the parking lot of our church, and it dawns on me that um, the daycare drop-off is the same time as the elementary school drop-off. So I drive into this parking lot, and there are about 20 or 30 eight- and nine-year-old sweet kids going to a Christian school, and I'm driving down in this death van, and there are moms, like, shielding their kids' eyes. Someone's calling the police, and I'm just like, oh, I just want to hide under a table. I want to get out of here. So I pulled up behind dumpsters in the church parking lot before I dropped my kids off, and I got out as quickly as I could, and I did one of these things where I, like, put my finger in the liquid and kind of, like, smelled it like that. 
I didn't taste it. I didn't taste it, but I just smelled it. And lo and behold, it was, um, it was silicone paint. It was uh, acrylic paint, whatever, whatever construction companies use. So apparently, uh, a big five-gallon bucket of dark red paint had fallen off a construction truck and had landed just perfectly to cover my bright white minivan, which is nuts. I don't know who would paint anything that color. Uh, but I got my kids inside. I hosed down the van. I drove that bad boy for a few more years. It was in perfect working order. But I share that story because... I am very familiar with that feeling that I had of my face turning red, of just wanting to get under a table and hide, of embarrassment or this feeling that we call shame. I know that feeling very, very well. Uh, Shame and I, we have a history. I'm very familiar with shame. It's been a part of my life from some of my earliest memories. In fact, uh, psychologists point out that our most vivid memories are not the memories of the good times in life. They're actually the shameful ones. Like, I don't remember in vivid detail some of the best moments of my life. I don't remember, like, my wedding day. Uh, I don't know what we ate. I have no idea what I was wearing or the groomsmen. I was kind of thinking about the night after. But uh, I do remember that time in ninth grade when I put my foot in my mouth and said something super dumb and the teacher kicked me out of class. I know what desk I was sitting in. I know the names of the people beside me. I've rehearsed that about 100 times. And maybe your mind does the same thing. You ever been laying in bed at night and looking forward to going to sleep and your mind says, this would be a good idea to go back over every stupid thing you've ever done. It's because that's, that's how shame works. That's what it is. I've had hundreds mo- of moments of shame, uh, moments where I just kind of wanted to hide under a table. Uh, every time I got suspended, which was a lot in high school and in middle school, and I had to face that principle. Uh, Moments where I put my foot in my mouth and I could kind of see the reaction of the people beside me thinking that I'm an idiot. Uh, When I lost a full ride scholarship to college and I had to call my dad and listen to his voice on the other end of the line. And I could go on and on. Uh, But what I do know from years of ministry is that I am not alone in this um, when it comes to familiarity with shame. Everyone deals with shame. Uh, Everyone has let someone down. Uh, We've all lost the deal at work. Uh, We've all uh, felt like a failure as a parent or as a spouse. Uh, We've all been picked last in gym class. We've all uh, felt inadequate. Uh, We've all failed a test. We've all drank a little bit too much in public. We've all gotten a ticket. Most of us have. We've all felt shame. Uh, One author actually says this, it matters not if the person earns a two-comma salary or works for minimum wage. She may be married or single He may be African-American or Caucasian, depressed, anxious, or just plain angry, happy, sad, or indifferent. It doesn't require the breakdown of our mental health to be plagued by it. It only requires that you have a pulse. To be human is to be infected with this phenomenon that we call shame. That's by a book uh, by a guy called Kurt Thompson, and the book's called The Soul of Shame. You should buy it. You should read it. Uh, Some of the material you're going to hear me was kind of inspired uh, by that book, but everyone feels this. So raise your hand if you've ever felt shame before. Everyone's raising their hand. Yes. But the problem that I've kind of found and learned over the past few years is that we radically underestimate the destructive power of shame. You see, shame in our culture is just kind of this unpleasant emotion that we'd rather not feel. But in the Bible, shame is not just a bad mood that we fall into from time to time. It's actually a tool that Satan uses to wreak havoc. It's one of Satan's main weapons that he uses to harm our relationship with him 
in our relationship with other human beings. I actually was just thinking about this this week. Um, Shame shows up in the very first few pages of the Bible after uh, God creates the heavens and the earth, after he kind of flings the stars into space. He creates Adam. He says, not good that you're alone. You need a helper. He creates Eve, and he looks over all of creation on the seventh day and says, it is good, and he blesses it, and he rests. The author actually gives us a one-sentence summary of what life was like in this paradise of existence. It's in Genesis 2.25. It says, The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, the author could have used any number of words to describe what life was like before sin. He could have said, you know, man and woman felt immense contentment. Or man and woman felt immense joy and satisfaction. Or he could have said that paradise is really the absence of suffering or it's the absence of pain, or it's the absence of relational turmoil. But instead, the author says, you want to know what paradise is like? It's the absence of shame. Because that's when our relationship with God is as close and life-giving as it's supposed to be. And it's only in the absence of shame that our relationships with other human beings is what they're supposed to be. And as soon as shame enters the world, uh, we actually see um, some consequences. In verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. The moment sin or shame enters the world, Adam and Eve hide from each other. They hide a a certain part of themselves from other human beings. And actually, they hide themselves from God. In verse 8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That's what shame causes. It causes isolation. It causes us to hide from other human beings, and it causes us to hide even from a God who loves us so much. And we know this. We know that shame instinctively makes us do this. We have a two-year-old foster daughter right now, and uh, my other two daughters are 12 and 13, so I'm reminded of what it's like parenting in the little years again. Um, But ever since she's come into our house, the moment that we say no, or the moment we say that's unacceptable behavior, uh, she automatically averts her gaze. She does not want any eye contact whatsoever, and she'll try to hide if she's able, but if she's in the car seat or something, she gets as small as she possibly can, and she just tries to hide because that's what shame does. And it's interesting how little Satan actually has to do to unleash the destructive power of shame because he doesn't have to do much. All he has to do is get you to doubt God's story and then substitute a different story in its place, a story about who God is and who you are and what that relationship is like. See, up until this point, um, the story that Adam and Eve had basically heard is, say, Adam and Eve, I love you. I know you intimately, and I don't want to push you away. I want to draw you near. I want to provide for you. I want a close relationship with you. You can trust me. That's the story that they have heard. But Satan causes Eve to doubt this story In just two sentences, in the first conversation that Satan has with human beings, he says, uh, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's the first sentence. And Eve's like, no, he said that we could eat from every tree, just not this one or we would die. And then Satan, the second sentence, all he says is you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And with these two little sentences, Satan causes some doubt in Eve's mind and kind of whispers a different story. And Eve begins to think things like, why why would God say that? Can can God really be trusted? Is it possible that God could lie to me? Why why am I not like God now? That sounds good, but does God not want me to be like him? 
Does he not want me to have what he has? Does God not want me to be as close or as intimate as I thought he did? Am I not as important as I thought? And then she begins thinking, maybe I'm less than I thought. Maybe there's something wrong with me. And see, she doubts and she begins to believe the story that Satan, that shame has whispered in her ear and they hide from each other. And they hear the footsteps of God and we're just a moment before they would go running towards God. Now they run away from him and they hide and they're isolated. And that's exactly where Satan wants Adam and Eve. And that's exactly where he wants you and me. Believing a different story, hiding and isolated from the God who loves us so much and from each other. And thousands of years later, he's still telling the exact same story. He's whispering those same words of, you don't have what it takes. You're a fraud. You need to hide. You aren't lovable. You guys ever heard that voice of shame before? Yeah, all of us have. And it's so prevalent, there's actually a secular word for it. It's called imposter syndrome, where everyone feels like a fraud at one point in their life. Now, I don't have time to go into how big a deal shame is in biblical counseling circles or to show you how often it shows up and just the story of the Bible or point out the thousands of different ways that shame and just destroys relationships, especially our relationship with God. But all of us are here to one degree or another. You know, drinking a little bit too much most nights of the week as you binge Netflix really because you feel like a failure as a mom or guys overworking and never resting because your biggest fear is that people will find out how, um, how inadequate you really are. We're coming to church on Sundays and singing worship songs to God, but very rarely ever getting alone with him during the week or talking with him by yourself for fear of what he might think about you. And what you need to know is that is not how God wants you to live. He does not want you hiding. He does not want you isolating. He doesn't want you doubting his love uh, for you or pushing other people away. And so God has stepped in and he has done something incredible in your life if you are a believer. Something that removes any trace of shame between your relationship with God and your relationship with other human beings. And it's something that will allow you to be vulnerable and really experience freedom from shame. And it's something that you might not have even known that God has done, but it's something that he's done through the Spirit, all right? We get through the Spirit. You're like, I thought this, this series was on the Spirit. It is, I get there, all right? Because John uses a very interesting uh, term or word to describe the Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16. Donnie talked about this last week, uh, but it's the Greek word parakletos. So everyone say parakletos, all right? Slip that into dinner conversation. You'll sound smart later. But uh, different translations uh, translated as helper, uh, some as counselor, some as comforter. Uh, some translations have advocate. I think that's the best word. The NIV in John 14, Jesus says this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. You see how that word counselor is capitalized? It's a technical term like engineer or doctor. We, we actually still have the word paraclete that we use today. Uh, back in Bible times, paraclete was basically a defense attorney. So it's someone, if you got convicted of a crime, they would come beside you. They would explain how the legal system works. They'd explain the laws. They'd explain how the trial would go. And then they would advocate for you 
to the judge. And it's important that um, Jesus uses that word another. Donnie said this last week, that word alos in the Greek, uh, it's, it means the exact same as. Remember Donnie ordered the exact same Coke Zero? And he lied, by the way. He usually has like 14 Coke Zeros when he eats. But uh, he is the same kind of advocate as Jesus. Uh, he advocates the same way that Jesus does. And so uh, you see, John uses this word paraclete one other time to describe how Jesus advocates. It's in 1 John 2 where he says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate. There's our word, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world, right? You have to get this. John's using a word picture with that word advocate. See, the world knows, and our culture knows, that shame is a bad thing, okay? And so the way they try to get rid of it, the only way they know how, is they minimize the horrible actions that we do on a daily basis. They just minimize what the Bible would call sin. So, hey, you slept around before you got married. No big deal. Everyone does it. That's part of what a growing relationship is like. You have to see if you connect, if there's chemistry there, or, you know, you yelled at your kid hardcore like 50 times this week. No big deal. You got a stressful job. You're an important person. And they minimize and they minimize and they minimize. And it's the only thing that they can do because they can't add Jesus to the equation. But the Bible actually does the opposite in dealing with our shame. And it seems weird at first, but the Bible actually raises up the the sinfulness of our actions. It says, yeah, you have done absolutely horrible things. And they're bad. But it just so happens that you have a wonderful Savior. Right? So you have to get this. this. This is the word picture that John is trying to get across. I want you to imagine with me a courtroom, okay? Some of you are familiar with courtrooms, it looks like. Uh, some of you not so much, but try to get in your head a courtroom. I was actually in a courtroom uh, earlier this week, and it is an intimate—I should probably tell you why. Uh, <laughs> I was in a courtroom for a foster case with our foster child, so I'm not running like a gambling ring on the side or anything, but it's an intimidating room. You got the judge— Uh, You have the prosecution, you have the defense, you have all these witnesses. We actually sat through about two or three family trials this week, and it's it's intense. So imagine with me a courtroom, and imagine instead of a judge, in the judge's seat is actually God the Father. So the holy, sovereign creator of the universe sitting in that judge's seat. And to his right is his son, Jesus Christ. And they kind of march you into that courtroom with handcuffs behind your back, and they sit you at this little table, and in walks the, prosecution, the prosecutor, prosecution. And the prosecutor has in his hands this huge, big, thick book. And it looks like, you know, like grandma's old Bible that she had, like, if you remember that. And you hear this booming voice from the judge's seat said, we are now going to start the trial of Chase Gardner. You just fill in your name. And so he's, what's, what's the evidence against him? And so the prosecution opens up that book beside you and begins reading these sentences, these items. Find out it's a list. And as he keeps reading, (laughs) your face begins to get redder and redder, and you realize what's going on. The prosecution is reading every single sin that you've ever committed from an early age up until now. And it's not just like the public sins that you know people know about. It's the stuff that you had no idea, that you kept in secret, that you you didn't want anyone to know about. Um, The addictions that you kept hidden, the the, the words of gossip 
that you spoke that you thought no one else heard except for that coworker, the, the prideful, the judgmental, the lustful thoughts in your brain. And the prosecution just keeps going and going, and you realize your worst fear is coming true. You are completely vulnerable. Every single part of you is made public, and there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide. And so the prosecution keeps reading and keeps reading and keeps reading. And for some of you, it would take hours. For me, it would take like weeks. But he finally gets to the end, and he's like, this is the evidence against the defendant, and I rest my case. And then God the Father looks at you and says, well, according to the law, um, according to justice, the penalty for just one of those things is death, hell, and eternal separation. And you happen to have a thousand of those things. And so he's about to bring the gavel down with a guilty verdict when from back in the back of the courthouse you hear this, objection! And you hear these footsteps walk up behind you and someone lays their hand on your shoulder and you look up and it's this guy and he says, I'm, I'm your paraclete, I'm your advocate, I'm your defense attorney. And you see his name tag and it just says, Holy Spirit. And so he looks at you and he's like, man, is all of that true? And you're like, yeah, every single bit. And he's like, well, what's our game plan here? Like, how are we going to do this? What's your defense? And, he's, and you say, well, I, I don't have anything. I mean, you got to ask for grace. Like, I've read about this guy. He, the judge seems to be a graceful, forgiving sort of guy. So can you just, like, throw me on the mercy of the court? Like, plead for grace. And the Spirit says, no, we're not going to do that. In fact, I'm going to plead for justice. I'm going to plead for justice to be done to the highest degree of the law. And you're like, oh my goodness, what is going to happen? And so he says, prosecutor, read that first line again. And he looks at you and he's like, did you kick your mom in the womb that many times? <laughs> and you're like, yeah. And he's like, objection. And the father says, on what grounds? And the spirit says, on grounds of the blood, of his spilled blood. It's already paid for. And the father looks at the son, the son nods, and the father says, sustain so he says, prosecution, keep reading. And so he reads a few more. And he's like, you did that to like your brother, your sister? You're like, yes, I did. And he's like, objection. And the father's like, on what grounds? On the grounds of the blood. It's covered by the blood of Jesus. And the father looks at the son and the son nods and the father says, sustained. And the prosecution goes through every single item of that sin. And the spirit just says, Objection. Objection, objection on what grounds? On the grounds of the blood. It's covered in the blood. It's paid for by your son. And the father just says sustained and sustained and sustained. And to your surprise, every single sin is within the bounds of that blood covering. The sexual sin that maybe you don't even like to think about. Some thoughts that even scared you when you had them. That abortion that you had or that you encouraged someone else to have objection. It's covered in the blood. It's covered in the blood. It's covered in the blood. And at the very end, the father looks at you and says, well, according to the law, here's your verdict. And he bangs that gavel down. Not guilty. Debt paid in full. In fact, he says more than that. He says, welcome to the family. <laughs> and you realize that what could have been your worst fear, being completely vulnerable, having every single part of you exposed to the public, actually turned out to be a dream come true <laughs> because your father knows every single part of you and instead of pushing you away, he draws you near and he draws you closer. Right? I love how Paul puts it in Romans 8 where he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's this courtroom picture again because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And through the work of Jesus and the advocacy of the Holy Spirit, God has dealt with absolutely anything that could separate you from him. There's no need to hide. He's removed every single shred of shame that could ever contaminate that relationship. And he says that point blank, Paul does later in Romans 8. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There's nothing. I'm convinced that neither angels, nor demons, nor heaven, nor hell, nothing can separate you from the love of God because of what Christ has done and because of the advocacy of the Holy Spirit. And that's the best news in the entire world, isn't it? I mean, that's the gospel. That's the foundation of our faith. And it's so true, but Here's a secret that maybe you haven't heard or Christians don't really like to reveal, but I found it true in my life. As amazing as that truth is, it is so hard to really believe. I mean, it's true. I get that, but it's hard, it's hard to accept it on a daily basis. And there's multiple reasons for this. First, because, I mean, it seems unfair like, God, you love me, but I know me. So how can you possibly love someone like me? And it's hard to believe because it's so glorious and it's so wonderful. But it's also really hard to believe because for the past decade or two decades or 30 or 40 years, before you hear that good news, shame has been whispering a completely different story. Shame has been telling you every single day when you get up until you go to sleep, you're not lovable, you can't be forgiven, you don't have what it takes. God cannot forgive you. And so there comes a moment when you accept the gospel and begin following Jesus even after that where you realize real quick that, that what shame's telling you is entirely different than what the gospel says and there's this battle that goes on in your heart. Now, it's not automatic. Like the first few weeks, maybe the first few months that you uh, begin following Jesus, man, it is awesome. You're like, yes, I am a child of God, uh, no longer a slave to sin, like hashtag blessed, like not today, Satan. Like you, you love the gospel, you own it, but eventually that whisper starts coming back. And it says maybe a slightly different story. Like, will God forgive all your sins? Are you sure about that? But, but you keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Like, surely there's a limit. Are you sure you can't lose your salvation? And that battle just starts where you know the truth of the gospel, but shame is whispering something entirely different. And it's very hard to wake up one morning after hearing shame for decades and really believe and live as if the opposite is true. The biggest battle of my life is to believe what God says about me is true. And so if that's you, you are not alone. And see, God knows this. He knows that constant whisper of shame is always there. And so he has put the very spirit of Jesus Christ into your heart to kind of combat those whispers of shame right? The Holy Spirit actually resides in you. Some Christians get it wrong. I know we say, hey, will you accept Jesus Christ into your heart? Jesus isn't the one in your heart. There's actually a former staff member, Joe, some of you will know him, but uh, his daughter said a few years ago, he told me this story. Uh, he said, daddy, I'm, I'm afraid. Can you come talk to me? It was late at night. So he walks in the room and his daughter says, dad, is Jesus a vampire? <laughs> and he's like, no, why would you ask that? That's weird. She's like, well, he lives in my heart. So I thought he ate blood or something like that. So no, Jesus is not the one that lives in your heart. It's the Spirit. And 
And see, God has placed that spirit inside of you to combat the whispers of shame. Now you have a voice telling you that's a lie and telling you what the truth is. In Romans 8, again, amazing chapter, it says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So now you have a partner in this battle to believe. When, shame, when you mess up and shame says, just attacks you and says, you don't have what it takes. God can't forgive you. You just forfeited God's love. Now you have the Spirit saying, that's not true. It, it's not, it doesn't depend on what you do or don't do. It depends on what Jesus did and didn't do. You are his son. You are his daughter. And now you have an ally in this battle to believe your new identity in Jesus Christ. See, he's an advocate. He's an advocate for you to the Father, and he's an advocate for the Father to you. So every day the Spirit says, Father, it's covered in the blood. He's your son. She's your daughter. And then he turns right around and says, hey, hey, it's covered in the blood. You really are his son. You really are his daughter. That's what that advocate term means. And it's this amazing part of what the Spirit does in our lives. But here's the thing about the Spirit. Uh, Theologians uh, actually call the Spirit the shy member of the Trinity. And if you read the Bible, it's true. Like God loves his glory. Jesus glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. But the Spirit's a little different. He doesn't like the spotlight on himself. He really doesn't like a whole lot of attention. Now, you go to some churches, you wouldn't get that. But uh, he likes to kind of work in the backstage. And the thing about the Spirit is he's never going to force himself into certain areas of your life to a certain degree. He's never going to make you listen to him. And so the Bible again and again describes our relationship with the Spirit like a partnership. And we actually have to learn to cooperate with the Spirit. This is a theme you're going to see in the series. And so when it comes to this battle to believe what God says about you, to, to, to get freedom from shame, part of what we have to do is we have to learn how to listen to the Spirit's voice over the voice of shame. We have to learn how to tune in to the voice of of the Spirit. It actually takes intentional effort. Again, Romans 8 says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what that Spirit desires. And the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and it's peace. So that means if you want peace, you have to consistently and intentionally set your mind on the things of the Spirit. You have to consistently and intentionally listen. Every single day, this has to be a habit that you grow in. But as you partner with the Spirit, and you do this day in and day out, week after week, month after month, that voice will get louder and louder and more familiar and more distinct until eventually you rarely even hear that old voice of shame. I'm looking forward to that day. I'm not there yet but I've gained some ground. Now, some of you are like, that's awesome that you hear the voice of the Spirit so often, Chase. <laughs> what does he sound like? I've never heard him. Does he have an accent? Like, is it a high pitch? Is it a low pitch? What, what does the, the Spirit sound like? Well, I have some good news for you. Uh, you probably already know what he sounds like if you've ever read the Bible because he sounds exactly like this. The Spirit uses the Word of God to speak to me. I've never heard the voice of the Spirit 
audibly, but every time that he has kind of nudged me, every time he has guided me, which we're going to talk about next week, every time he's given me discernment or encouraged me or nudged me a certain way, it's always through the words of Scripture that I've read or heard in a sermon or sang in a worship song that he actually brings back to my remembrance. Uh, later, Paul, in a different letter, he talks about the armor of God that we have. Maybe you've sang that song when you were little. But there's only one offensive weapon we have, and it's the sword of the Spirit. It's the word of truth. It's this thing. That's why you've got to be in the word. Donnie said it last week. We'll say it again next week. This is your biggest weapon to get free of shame. You got to memorize it. You got to be around people that speak to you. Actually, I'm using my Bible that I uh, had in high school and college. I lost it for years, and a good friend recently gave it back to me. And I brought it partly as an object lesson. I don't know. I didn't tell the cameraman about this. Um, but you can see, like, see how clean and nice, like, numbers is? Or, like, Leviticus is the same thing. There's not a whole lot of, like, underlining or anything like that. But I've been using Romans 8 a lot, and you can kind of see Romans 8. You see the notes there? And you see, like, the, the smudges from my thumb? When I was dealing with shame the most, it was my freshman year of college, I got out this Bible and I would hold it like this and I would go back and forth to class. I would just have my head down and I read Romans 8 probably a thousand times and I memorized it, I committed it to memory and it's verses out of this chapter that the Spirit has used to help me take steps in this. I'm not free from shame yet, but the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to accomplish the works of God. So the Spirit uses the word mainly, but he also uses other people. I'm going to end here. He uses other Christ followers as well. So here's the cool thing. As you learn to listen to the voice of the Spirit, and you begin to believe and really embrace your new identity um, in Jesus Christ, that you are, I mean, just more sinful and flawed than you could ever dare dream, but more accepted and loved than you could ever hope at the same time. As you begin to embrace that, what you'll find is that you hide less and less from other people. Um, there's this confidence that begins to grow. You become more and more comfortable with the idea, yeah, I'm a screw-up, but God still loves me. Um, you care less and less what people think about you and are more concerned with what people think about Jesus. Uh, you care less and less about having the appearance of having it all together and more concerned with uh, actually becoming like Jesus. And what you'll find slowly as you listen to the Spirit and get in His Word is that there will come a point when you kind of face your greatest fear. And you're kind of enabled and empowered by the Spirit to take those dark things that you have kept hidden and, and approach another Christ follower and just like, like bring it to them and be like, this is horrible, I know. Um, but I need your help because I want to be free of this. And that's where real healing begins. That's when you'll finally taste freedom, when you're vulnerable with another person, but not until then. Um, AA has a saying, Alcoholics Anonymous, it says we are only as sick as the secrets that we keep. Um, and it's only when we get other Christ followers involved as other allies in the battle with the same spirit residing inside them, it's only when we take that first step of vulnerability that we really experience real freedom. And that's a scary thought, I know. Um, I was scared to death the first time I did it. I was 22, uh, newly married, and I called my mentor, Scott, who was much older. And I said, meet me for coffee. And so I walked into that coffee shop like shaken. 
And we got small talk out of the way, and then I just like laid everything on the table. <laughs> like, here's all my, my mess. Here's my sin. And I firmly expected him to just like throw coffee in my face and like run out of the room, but he didn't. Um, he said, I struggled too. Um, thanks for sharing. God loves you. So do I. How can I help? And what do you know? He sounded almost exactly like the Spirit, right? And it's the moment that I realized that, that Christians, Christ followers, are really people that have come face to face with the depth of our sin um, and that have also come face to face with our amazing Savior and the grace and forgiveness and shame-free, uh, no condemnation that we have in that relationship. And they're also filled with the exact same Spirit, right? the Advocate, covered in the blood. You're a child of God. And that's what you need to experience real freedom. So, um, I don't know where you're at. Um, maybe you're watching online right now and um, you just needed that reminder. You need to get into the Word of God this week. You need to commit some verses to memory. You need to, to listen to more worship songs. You just need to continue to fight the battle to believe. Uh, maybe you're here or listening and um, you're right on the precipice of taking that first step of being vulnerable. And um, you're still enslaved. You're, you're not experiencing the life that God wants for you and it's because you're still hiding. So maybe some of you need to set up a coffee, you need to set up a phone call, and I think you'll be surprised at how the other person reacts. Uh, but some of you watching, I know, have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've never taken advantage of that free forgiveness. And so as we wrap up, I want to give you a chance to do that right now. So I'm going to ask everyone in the room to bow their heads and uh, uh, close their eyes. And if that's you and you're listening online, just, just bow your heads right now. In your living room, on the treadmill, probably not a great idea. You can keep watching. But if you're in bed, bow your head, close your eyes. And I don't know why, why you haven't accepted that free forgiveness. Maybe you've never heard about it before. Maybe some of you were waiting until you cleaned up enough for God to accept you. Maybe you were trying to get rid of that addiction. Maybe you were trying to just clean yourself up before you take that step. And you heard today, you do not have to do that. That all of that can be freely forgiven through Jesus Christ. So if that's you, I just want you to pray a simple prayer. Not these exact words, but something like this. Father, I heard today that you love me and that you have paid for my sin through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I don't deserve it, but I want it so bad. Would you just forgive me? Would you forgive me and bring me close? Would you start a relationship with me? And would you send your spirit to live inside me so that I could experience freedom? Now, if you prayed a prayer or something like that, there's nothing magical about it, but that is the best decision you would have ever made. And so if that's you, I want you to tell someone. Maybe tell someone in your family. Maybe raise your hand in the chat right now. Maybe just, just email us. Do something to let someone know so we can celebrate that with you. Let me just pray for everyone else that's listening right now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit. Um, and I bit off a bit more than I could chew this week. <laughs> I do not fully understand or comprehend the thousands of different ways, Spirit, that you help us. But Father, I pray for those listening. Would you grant them victory in their battle to believe? Would you break shackles? Would you break down walls? And would you grant freedom? through the power of your word, through the power of your church, and through the power of your spirit. So we love you so much. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray.
Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We appreciate you joining us as we tackle issues facing our modern world from a biblical perspective. To make sure you don't miss a message, please take a moment and hit the subscribe button. Also, if you're new to Hope and want to check out what we're about and how to be a part of our community, go to our next steps at gethope.net slash next. Let us know your story because we'd love to connect with you.